Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Daniel. We pray, Jesus, that tonight as we read it, that we would focus, we would tune in, we would not tune out, that we would have every distraction removed so we hear exactly what it is that you want for us, Lord, and what you think about us and what your plans are for us in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. If you wanted to let people know that you did something, any work of art, an artist, if he wants to make sure that people knew that this particular artist was the one who made this painting or whatever, you put what? Your signature on it. If you're writing a book, if you're signing, you know, um, if you, you sign your autograph on a poster or something, you're famous or whatever, this lets people know that it's really you. If you're paying for a bill and they ask for your autograph. Some people do, like old people do that, like, hey, can I have your autograph? Like, that's, that's really cheesy. You're, you're giving your signature to show that it's really you, that this is your stamp of approval. This is what I'm saying. Prophecy is God's signature. Pastor Lee says that all the time. It's the indicator that this is the word of God. Why would it be God's signature? Why isn't God's signature something else like, I don't know, like some kind of miracle, just like a fireball from heaven? I guess like God could definitely do that, right? Here's the thing. Literally only God knows the future. God says that I know the end from the beginning. Did you, did you know that Satan doesn't know the future? When I mean like he reads the Bible, like he knows what's going to happen like, like we do. But Satan can't see the future. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Only God does. Not even angels know. Only God is omniscient. He has all knowledge of all the events, past, present, and future. That being the case, if you want to prove that you're God, all you have to do is tell people what's going to happen before it happens. And that's what God has done time and time again throughout human history for the people of Israel, for us to show us that he really exists. I mean, one of the craziest prophecies has been fulfilled in our lifetime, and that of course, is the people of Israel being brought back into Israel, the Jewish people. Now, I'm half Jewish, and if you talk to people in, in your high schools, you might know a person who's Jewish, and it's like, wait, is Jewish a religion or an ethnicity? The answer is both, and that makes them a really unique people group, and here's why. For a really, really long time, after Rome took over and, and scattered all the Jewish people all over the place, so you have Jews in Yugoslavia, Romania, all these different places— for a really, really long period of time, there were no Jewish people in Israel. They were all scattered about. Israel was uninhabited. It was desert. No one thought anyone would ever go back to Israel. So when the Bible said that God would draw his people back into the land of Israel, everyone made fun of it. Even some theologians didn't believe in it because they're like, how in the world is God going to bring people back into Israel? That can't be what he actually means. So let's spiritualize it, pretend like it's some kind of like deeper meaning or something. So no one actually, a lot of people didn't believe it. But what brought the people of Israel back into the land? It was the Holocaust, a catastrophic event that allowed the United Nations to decide that the nation would come back together again and Israel would be born as, as a nation. And the Bible talks about, can a nation be born in a day? And look, I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what God did. That happened in our lifetime, in the lifetime of our grandparents. So really interesting because the Bible actually is God's word, and God actually knows what he's talking about. So Daniel chapter 7, we begin, it says, verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. 
Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So this is where he opens up. Remember, the last thing we looked over was Daniel in the lion's den. And so recounts the story. He was delivered from the mouth of the lion. But then all of a sudden it says, in the first year of, first year of Belshazzar. Now, that's backtracking because Daniel, remember, when he was thrown in the lion's den, he was serving under this guy named Darius. So the way it goes is Daniel served for three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, who was his uh, grandson, and Darius, the Mede. So now it says the first year of Belshazzar. What that means is it's stepping backwards because this is indicating a new portion of the book, which is all about prophecy. And it says now that Daniel was the one who had a dream and vision. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We talked about those things before, but now Daniel himself is going to dream, has a dream. Verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom... Three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, you're probably thinking, what in the world is this? I came to a youth group, and suddenly I'm in a cult. No, you're not. Don't worry. Well, the other thing you're, you're thinking is just like, I thought prophecy was like God's signature to say that like he is God. But this, to me, just sounds like a cryptic riddle. Don't worry, the Bible itself explains the riddle. We're going to skip down for a second to verse 15, and we're going to see kind of like a summation of what this dream was, an interpretation, and then we'll backtrack and go back to those verses. So follow along with me in verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, and, I, and by the way, this is, like, this is an angel. It's not like he's sleeping in his bed and he's just like, oh, here's conveniently a guy nearby. What do you think about this vision? This is an angel. And asked them the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. Ah, that's what it is. Okay, good. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom." Okay, now let's backtrack. So here's what it's talking about. It names four world empires. Wait a minute, that sounds familiar. That's because Nebuchadnezzar, 
Once again, remember, he had a dream of the four world empires. But what was his dream? His dream was a statue of, with a head of gold, and it had silver, bronze, and then feet of iron mixed with clay and had ten toes. Here we have a vision of four different beasts. The first one is a winged lion. The second one is a bear. The third one is a winged leopard. And the last one is some kind of dreadful and terrible metal animal, huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces. I like to think of it as a robot. Like the Bible's talking about robots. I mean, you can think of something else, but that's kind of what it seems like, right? Iron teeth, breaking things, it's scary. I mean, imagine being Daniel and seeing a robot way back when. It's probably terrifying. It's like, what in the world is that? How is that moving? How is that alive? It's a robot, duh. Okay, so the first beast. First beast is the first world empire, and this, of course, is Babylon. So as you have the first beast, and it was a lion with eagle's wings, it says in verse 4, I watched till the wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, this reminds me of what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was strong. He was king of the most glorious, beautiful empire, but he was humbled because he didn't give the glory to God. And so this is where it makes sense that he was given a heart, or he made to stand on two feet like a man, and man's heart was given to it. Remember, after he humbled himself after seven years, he was given back his sanity, and he was fine. Now today, if you look in, in history, if you look at like the relics and stuff, Babylon's like mascot was a winged lion. So really interesting. So this would make sense to a person who's familiar with Babylonian culture. Second world empire is the bear. And it raised up on its one side, verse 5, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, arise, devour much flesh. And here, the three ribs, most people believe that it symbolizes the three. So this, once again, this is uh, not Greece. This is the Medes and the Persians. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And most people believe that Persia conquered three kingdoms. And these are the three ribs, Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. And that's what he has in between its teeth. And it says, arise, devour much flesh. So these kingdoms are getting conquered one after another. The next kingdom is Greece. And that's verse 6. Another beast like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now remember, if you know history, this is the the, the person who is the the king of Greece, the one who is is conquering all the other world empires, was Alexander the Great. And so it's interesting that it says he has four wings of a bird and four heads. This is symbolizing the four generals that he turned it over to. If you remember the prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar had, or he had the dream, and then he talked about how there was a goat that was swiftly going around, and it conquered faster, but then it died, but not, without its, uh, not with its power. And that's what happened to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the world faster than anybody else. Actually, I was talking to Pastor Jay before this, and I was like, what are some cool like facts about Alexander the Great? And he said, actually, so he conquered every nation except India, because apparently he recorded that there were dragons there. And I don't know if there actually were dragons, but that's what he said. So maybe he just got really scared of Indian food or something. I don't know. But apparently that's what he records. And, you know, that has nothing to do with the Bible study. But I thought that was interesting. Alexander the Great, though, as he was conquering the known world while he was still very young, he unfortunately had a tragic demise because one day he's bored. 
he's like, I conquer the world. There's nothing else to do. He gets drunk, and he decides to walk home in the rain, gets bronchitis, turns to pneumonia, and he dies. Totally a not epic way for a world ruler to die. But that's what happened to Alexander the Great. When he dies, his kingdom is divided to the four generals he has underneath us. This is what the Bible tells. Remember, this didn't happen yet when this is written. This is, to them, future. And we can look back and like, of course, that's Alexander the Great. And, of course, his four generals. And dominion was given to it. Okay, number four. The fourth kingdom is this robot. Says verse 7, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it and had ten horns. Horns are a symbol, especially in those days, of power. So these are ten kings, remember, the interpretation says. I was concerning the horns. There was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of the man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Here is where we start talking about the Antichrist. So four kingdoms, okay? Four world empires. This is what world history is. Babylon, conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Conquered by Greece, Alexander the Great. Conquered by Rome. But here's the thing. Who conquered Rome? Nobody. Nobody's conquered Rome. But it doesn't seem like Rome's doing too good today. I don't think anyone would say that Rome is a world power, like a ferocious beast, like a robot, and devouring everything. So what in the world happened to Rome? Remember that in the prophecy with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that Rome was symbolized by iron feet, iron toes, mixed with clay. So it was strong, but at the same time, it had weaknesses to it. Many people believe that the Roman Empire, since it was never conquered, will one day come to power again. And out of that Roman Empire will come ten kings, of which one of them will be the Antichrist. So that's where you, you get people theorizing weird things about like, oh, maybe the Pope. The Pope is going to be the Antichrist. I'm not saying he is. Do not go home and tell your parents I said the Pope is the Antichrist. I did not say that. I'm saying this is what people say. I don't believe it. Maybe. I don't know. I'm learning these things with you, but I don't think so. Um, a lot of people, people say ridiculous things about the Antichrist. Isn't it true? Like, we don't know that much, and like, Donald Trump is the Antichrist. And the whole thing is like, the Bible says that the Antichrist is going to be really eloquent with his speech. No offense. <laughs> I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. So... People are, ever since I was little, people said, like, Bill Gates was the Antichrist. Like, Bill Gates. He's just thinking, like, if anyone's going to be a world ruler, they would be somebody that everybody wants to follow. And Bill Gates, like, owns Microsoft, and half the world is Mac. So why would anyone think that Bill Gates is the Antichrist? I guess, like, some people, I remember, you get this chain. So back in the day, before you had memes and social media and stuff, you had chain email. People would send you an email and they would send, like, my dad this stuff about how, like, if you add up the characters in, like, in a binary code of Bill Gates' name, it added up to 666. You know, that's how you know that the Antichrist is Bill Gates. Like, the most ridiculous things. Like, stop that. The whole point is we won't know who the Antichrist is until he chooses to reveal himself. And when he does, he's going to be part of that world, last world empire that's going to devour and destroy everything else. And it says here... If you look at verse 8, what's going to happen? I was concerning the horns, and there is another horn, a little one, 
coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns are plucked up by the roots. So this is where people believe that these three kings of the ten kings, for whatever reason, the Antichrist is going to get rid of or kill or whatever. And there in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of the man, which means that he's intelligent, he's smart, and a mouth speaking pompous words. He's proud, and he's basically claiming to be God. He thinks that he's awesome. In history, there have been many antichrists, types of antichrists. There was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes that tried to commit the abomination, abomination of desolation, which is sacrificing uh, a pig inside of the temple in the holies of holies. This is what happened. And this is, if you want to like study this, this is where Hanukkah actually comes from, is this rebellion to like reclaim the temple and dr- driving out Antiochus Epiphanes and all those other people. So there have been types of antichrist throughout history, but there's going to be one ultimate antichrist that comes that tries to deceive the entire world, at which point we believe that Jesus is going to come and rapture his church, take us up to be with him, and for seven years, there's going to be a period of tribulation, at the end of which, God is going to return to put an end to sin, death, the Antichrist, and all of his enemies. So, I know, so, like, if you're not a Christian, you're like, what in the world is this? I would just say, like, if you're going to reject Christianity, don't do it based on what I'm saying right now, because this is, like, this is the end of the book. you got to read the beginning of the book. You have to ask yourself questions of meaning, like, why am I here? Is there a God? All those questions are really, really important questions. And we as believers, we come to faith in Jesus first through knowing him personally, through reading the Bible, through looking at signs of like what, what makes the most sense logically, philosophically, all those different things. And then we come to, okay, well, if the Bible is God's word, what does it actually say? And we can believe it and trust it and know that he knows what's going to happen in the future. Okay. Now, what can we make sense of out of this first section of the study? I will give you an application because I know people need that, okay? Hopefully you're tracking with me thus far. You live? Good. Three people live. Alexander the Great is awesome, and so are the other guys. But here's the thing. So far, we've described four world empires. Interesting because, remember, there's two parallel dreams, Nebuchadnezzar's and Daniel's. Nebuchadnezzar's was a beautiful image of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Daniel's dream are four wild, ferocious beasts. Here's why there's two different interpret, uh, two different, um, what's the word? Two different emanations? <laughs> what's the word? There are two different versions of the dream. Thank you. Who was that? Bonus points. Thank you. Here's why there's two different versions of the same interpretation of the dream. One is from man's view, and the other is from God's view. Here's what you need to know. Man will look at the things of this world, look at world empires, and only see the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, what they can obtain. They'll look at everything and look at success, the riches of this world, prosperity, the American dream. That's what we look at and we focus when we're sucked into the world's idea. But did you know that every time someone prospers in this world, it comes at someone else's cost? If you obtain worldly prosperity, success, and money, it's always on the backs of somebody else. This is where your first point for tonight, if you're, we only have two, here's your first point in summation of 
the whole first section. In this world where man seeks gold, God sees blood. In this world where man seeks gold, God sees blood. I don't don't know if you know this, but like you should know this from history class. If you don't, um, go online, go on Google, go on YouTube, look up the Trail of Tears. Andrew Jackson, who was one of our presidents, was trying to get rid of Native Americans, the Cherokees, and he made them travel 1,000 miles away from their homeland, and many of them died. About 3,500 Native Americans died, all because he didn't want them around. You realize that Americans moved into a country where there were people already existing? They already lived here. And what happened to those people? They drove them out. They tried to make them exactly like them. And like, well, if they're going to be around us, we're more powerful. We have weapons, and we want to plant, and we want to make money, and we want to do things. So they're going to have to get out of the way. Did you know to wear some of the clothes that we're wearing? There's slave labor around the world, unfortunately. In order to keep costs down, people outsource. Instead of uh, building things here, making things here, people outsource where they can find the cheapest labor so they can bring the cost down so that more people will buy it. This is the world that we live in. And I'm not saying it's evil to buy clothes and want nice things and whatever, but I'm saying recognize that in order to get some of the things that we want, it's on other people's backs. That's why there was the slave trade in the beginning. It's, it's one of the embarrassing things of America's past is that people had slaves, and everybody had slaves back then. It was like normal. Like, of course you have a slave. That's how you're going to make a living. That's how you're going to be able to make money is if you have slaves. So it's what, you know, a couple people suffer, whatever, but like I'm going to be able to prosper. This is the selfish mentality that many people in our world have today is they're always thinking about themselves, the American dream. It's about the pursuit of happiness, my own personal happiness. And here's what happens. It translates into the church too. You come to church and you seek your own individual and personal happiness. And worship is under the guise of, I come to worship as long as it speaks to me. I come to hear the message as long as it speaks to me. But we don't think about like, hey, maybe it's not about you. Maybe it's about God and other people. Maybe the worship isn't for you, but it's for other people and it's for God. Maybe the teaching may not be personally like the most applicable message, but it's about God and we're learning about him and we're being transformed from the inside out. We're not taking the world's thoughts and we're not taking the world's doctrine and we're saying like, okay, we believe what the world says. We believe that the world thinks that these things are important so we're gonna chase after those things. We believe what God says is important so we're gonna chase after his things. So recognize when we seek worldly prosperity, it is co- costing other people their prosperity. It's costing other people. This is, I'm not knocking capitalism. I'm not a communist. I'm not any of those things. Maybe I didn't even have to say that. But I want you to know that the kingdom of this world will come to an end. And there will come a time when God comes down and he sets things right. Until then, every world empire will always be seeking to take control. And this is what happens. We think we're the good guys. We go to war. And of course it makes sense. We feel like we... We have the ability to go to other nations and judge them. Like, they're not doing the right thing, so we're going to go. We're going to send people over, and we're, we're going to do our thing. I'm not against any of that, okay? But what I am saying is we have to remember that our kingdom is not of this world, okay? So for us, we are to be supporting our troops, supporting our military, and, and I'm so thankful for the sacrifice so many people have made. But recognize that until Jesus comes back, there will always be wars. There will always be fighting. 
So it's so important for us to remember that our allegiance, first of all, is to King Jesus, not to the person next to us, not to our government. It's to Jesus first and foremost. And because we believe in Jesus, then that's why we obey the, the government. That's why we obey the authority above us. That's why we support our troops and our soldiers is because we, first and foremost, respect Jesus as king and Lord. So never put your trust in man and our might and our military power. All those things are great. But first and foremost, our trust needs to be in Jesus and what he's going to do. So the world that we live in today is messy. But I'm thankful, like my, my grandfather fought in World War II, and he was actually a prisoner of war over there in Europe. And um, he was a Jew as well, so he could have been very easily sent to a concentration camp. I'm thankful for his sacrifice and, and what he did as well. I'm thankful for so many people that have, that have fought. Because if you think about it, like... Hitler could have won if we didn't send people over. Hitler could have completely just, and, and God used that, right? But recognize that it's always going to be messy. There's always going to be casualties until Jesus comes back. So for us, what does this mean? This means that for us personally, always think about sacrifice rather than success. Think about, and that's what I love about some of the people that serve, right? They think about, I'm doing this for other people to protect our country. I'm thinking about the person next to me. Think about my neighbors. Think about my family. That's, that should be our mentality. Sacrifice, not success. The wrong thing to do is to look at other people's sacrifice and be like, all right, now I'm going to seek my own personal success. We should see when, when we send people overseas, we should see when, when we're, uh, we have people that are protecting us, instead of seeking our own prosperity, we should be seeking other people's prosperity. We should do the exact same thing, to be serving one another, loving one another, even loving our enemies. That's the mentality that God has for us. The Bible warns time and time again about the danger of storing up treasure for ourselves. Ecclesiastes talks about it. It's like, you know the irony is like, you know, um, kind of the world that we live in is people are driven to success and they want to make a lot of money because they hate the fact that there are some people that are so spoiled, they just have everything handed to them, right? They just like inherit everything. They're born into a wealthy family, whatever. And then there's people that see that and like, I wasn't given that. So I'm going to work by the sweat of my brow, my, my tears, my whatever. I'm going to work really hard, gain a lot of money, and just kind of like chill out and, and be, be able to look at my accomplishments and be like, ha, I did this all for myself. But the irony is like when you have kids, all that money goes to people the very same kinds of people that you despised and hated and started off in the first place, like, I can't believe that person has everything handed to them. Your kids are going to be those people. That's what Ecclesiastes talks about. It's ironic to store up treasures for yourself. Because, even, like, what happens if you die? Like, who's going to take all your stuff? So instead, we're supposed to be storing up treasures in heaven. Where moth doesn't eat it, when rust doesn't rust it away, we're supposed to be going where uh, it's storing up treasures where people can't touch it because it's stored up in heaven. The Bible also talks about what is the profit of man if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? That's not what it's all about. It's about storing up treasures in heaven. Think about Lot's wife. Remember that story when um, Lot and his family were called out of Sodom and Gomorrah, but that was first because they were a very wicked nation. They did all kinds of detestable things. And they were greedy and selfish and, and whatever. So in that little city, um, Lot and his family were the only righteous family. So they were all called out. 
And remember, there was the prayer of like, if there's only 50 righteous, would you still destroy the city? I'm like, all right, for 50, I would save the city. There's 40, 30, 20, 10. And then he took only Lot and his family and preserved them. That's another reason why people believe that the church isn't going to be here during the, the time of the tribulation is because God always brings his people, his children, out of his wrath, out of his judgment. Noah and the ark, Lot and his family, etc. But anyway, so remember, as Lot is leaving and then the Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed, what does Lot's wife do? She looks back. And because of that, she turns into a pillar of salt. And it wasn't just like, oh, I dropped something. And you turn around and she like dies. What happened is, the context is that she looked longingly at the past. She looked back and she desired it. She wanted it. She wanted to go back. For us as believers, we're supposed to look at this world and be like, man, all this doesn't really matter. And I'm not saying don't take care of the earth. I'm not saying like, because some people take this to the nth degree. I've heard of stories where people like eating a cheeseburger and they're like, well, it's all going to burn. Toss out the window, you know, like don't do that. But what I'm saying is don't hold so tightly onto the things of this world that are just going to rot one day. Instead, invest in what's eternal, which is people. All of us are going to live forever. So you invest in people, you love people, and you love God. Okay. Next half, but it's going to be shorter, don't worry, is in verse 9. We're shifting sec sections right now, going to verse 9. Now Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Remember, you have uh, the Antichrist, and he's speaking promised words, whatever. And it says the thrones were put in place, ancient days was seated. A lot of people believe that this is Revelation chapter 4, 24 elders, in other words, representing the church. And it says, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Interesting. I heard that this is the only place in the Bible where God the Father is described in a bodily kind of a form. Nowhere else in the Bible does it describe him. So, interesting. So, white symbolizing purity uh, and his eternality. Ancient of Days, his name is called. And verse 9, the other half says, His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was sealed. The books were opened. I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts... They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here you have pictures of fiery streams being issued from the throne, wheels burning, his throne was a fiery flame. These are symbols of judgment, wrath, that God is a loving God, but because he's loving, he's also a wrathful God. He also judges wicked nations. And, and some people find that really hard to believe that God has wrath and God judges people. A lot of people find that hard to believe. But you and I do it all the time. Anytime we hear about cases in which people are abused sexually, anytime we hear about cases where people are beheaded, it makes us well up with anger, doesn't it? And that's righteous. Sometimes God uh, stirs up inside of us righteous anger where we know that it's not supposed to be that way. And none of us would be like, well, you know what? That person killed a couple people, people beheaded them, whatever. Like, We'll just let them go. We know that that person should be judged. And how much more... When people have sinned against an infinite God, that God in his righteousness does have, uh, does issue consequences for the things that people do, whether good or bad. 
So here you have the beast who is the, or the horn was slain, and it also says the beast, his body destroyed, given to the burning flame. So this is the end, end times, and it says the rest of the beast, remember the four empires, they had their dominion taken away, and their lives were prolonged for a season and time. This is speaking of the millennial reign. So for a thousand years, kind of in a short summation, ask questions, questions about this later. But uh, we believe here, being premillennial, that there will be a literal thousand-year period of time where we come as a church and hang out here on earth. So really crazy because what that means is, like, like if you ever want to do stuff, if you want to go Australia and stuff, and you're like, oh, man, I'll never be able to go to Australia because I don't have any money. You will have for a 1,000 years to be able to hang out in Australia if you want to. That's what we believe. We're coming back to the earth. We'll be here 1,000 years hanging out. And, like, I don't know. Maybe we can fly and stuff. I don't know. Might be cool. And you can just hang out. But, like, the millennial, the millennial reign is, like, a really cool thing to think about because it, all of us, all of our talents and abilities are limited by our age. So... We know people that are really good musicians because they've been playing, like, all their lives. And, like, you know, they've been playing for 70 years if they're, like, really old. And they're, like, really fantastic, really good. But then your body starts to deteriorate. Your memory starts to go, whatever. And then you can't really do the things that you want to do. But imagine if you could, like the Bible says, at 100 years old, you'll still be like a kid. Imagine if you could play music for, like, 500 years with the same band. Wouldn't, like, that be crazy? Imagine if you played basketball for 600 years. Like, what kind of things can you do with 600 years of experience of basketball? So people think heaven's going to be boring. It is not going to be boring because everything that you do is going to be amazing. Here's why some people think heaven's going to be boring. It's because you can envision anything that you do right now being fun for eternity. It's because it's not meant to be that way. But I'm sure God's going to come up with games and cool stuff for us to do for eternity. We're going to have fun. Don't worry about it. Some things that we do now is, are fun. He'll have more fun things for us later on. Here's what I want you to focus on, and here's your second application. It says that the rest of the beasts had their dominion taken away, right? So in other words, all these empires were given dominion. It was borrowed. So your second point is this. Every king borrows his crown from God. Every king borrows his crown from God. The Bible describes that at one point, when people see Jesus, whether they want to or not, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. That every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the king of the universe. I think that's my favorite description of Jesus, king of the universe. And whether you believe it now or not, you too will bow the knee when you see Jesus. Because he's the king of the universe. If you bow to any kingdom, you bow to anything, you believe that success is the most important thing, you believe that relationships are the most important thing, there will come a day when we all recognize that Jesus is God, whether we'd like to or not. The question is, why would we remain in rebellion today? If you don't have to, why would you? If God is the rightful king to the throne, it's almost like the Narnia movies, you know, like Aslan's coming back. Like, if you know that that time is coming, then why waste your time here on earth? Why live your life as if there is no king of the universe? Why live your life as if there's no God? Because the fact of the matter is each and every one of us knows deep down inside that there is a God, that he does exist, that he has shown himself in human history. And to actually block that out is to neglect the fact that he has a purpose for you and has a calling on your life. He has an invitation like we learned last week. 
ignoring all those things and misusing your life so that one day you look at him, he's like, I don't know who you are. I never knew you. You don't want that to happen to you. So I'm asking, like, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you just want to seek him today? So let me ask you just super practically. Let's go over that question. So if God is the king of the universe, he created you for a purpose, right? He has, he has a plan that only you can fulfill, a unique calling, a high calling. That's what we talked about last week. Awesome things, right? So you're never going to be happy unless you follow the Lord. It's true. It's a fact. And everybody knows that. Like when you sacrifice, if you take time to read your Bible and stuff, no one's ever going to be like, oh, man, I can't believe I wasted two hours reading the Bible. No one's going to do that. No one's going to be like, oh, I can't believe I wasted all my life being a Christian. No one's going to do that. So if we know that in our heads, we should know that in our hearts, then why do people rebel? Why do people still want to do their, you know, walk in sin and walk in rebellion? Is it because you're afraid of not being who you are, becoming a different person, being a Jesus freak? Like, is that what you're afraid of? Well, I would say to that, you're actually becoming less of who you are by denying Jesus, by denying the creator. You're becoming somebody else. You're becoming a copy of somebody else that's like a lesser version. Everybody hates it when you have copycats. Isn't it true? Like, you watch like American Idol, not American Idol, what do, what do they have? The Voice. And they're like, the person sings, and they sound like a worse version of one of your favorite singers. Everybody hates that. And you're like, who are you? You're that guy that sounds like a worse version of that person. You don't want to be known as that. You want to be known as you. The only way to do that is to talk to your creator and say, like, okay, so what's the instructions? Like, what, are you, what am I supposed to do? And he shows you. So if it's about afraid of losing your identity, you actually lose your identity by not following God. What is it? If you think that you're going to have more fun, everybody knows that's false. I was talking to a guy this past week. Where he's talking about, like, uh, is it, like, um, so is it bad to have premarital sex? And I told him, I was like, okay, I'll break it down for you this way. So, yeah, the Bible has the command, you know, don't have sex before marriage or whatever. But here's the thing. When you have sex with someone, there's hormones that I'm sorry I said that word in church, but hopefully you guys are okay with that. You're in high school. Well, you have sex education. You're fine. Anyway, <laughs> that's like in high school. So, um, there are hormones in your brain because, like, our bodies, our biology, our makeup is so much so that you're, like, um, there are hormones that kick in so that, like, the mom is bonding with the husband because they're about to rear a child together. So there's things, biology and whatever, it's supposed to kick in. That's just a fact. The reason why I think God put it that way is because sex is the most intimate thing that you can do with another person. And sex, its purpose is not just to have fun or whatever, but it's supposed to be about uh, reflecting God's image, number one, but also to know that when you are being the most intimate with another person in any way that you can be, that you know within marriage that this person is going to be with you for life, okay? So in a marriage covenant, what you're saying is that you and I, till death do us part, we are never going to leave each other. That means you can share your deepest secrets with that person. You can share everything and not be afraid of that person cheating on you, leaving on you, whatever. Treating you like, oh, I don't know, just like you're not that special anymore. I'm not attracted to you anymore and whatever. And that's everyone's greatest fear. And to be that intimate with that person and then break away from them is like the most devastating thing. And he told me, it's just like, oh, man, you're right. Like I know what that's like to like after you sleep with somebody, it's like completely different. You're like, you feel like if you break up with him, you just lost a piece of yourself. He's saying that to me. I didn't say that to him. He's saying that to me. So here's, here's the thing. We know that God's way is better. So why don't we believe it? So if you think that sin's more fun, it's not. 
Bible says that sin's fun for a season, but it's a way of destruction. So that being the case, we should listen to the Bible. Why do we rebel? Why do we want to do our own thing? I think a lot, oftentimes, people are just stubborn. But I would ask you, what would it take for you to follow Jesus? What would it take for you to submit yourself to God? Submission means that here is the plan of God for your life. And then you take your plan and you submit underneath it. Submission. You take your mission and you put it under like a submarine and saying, I am following you. What would that take? Would it take God to break you through a tragedy? Would it take God humbling you through maybe breaking your pride? What would it take for God to win you over so that you would follow him? And I would ask for you to ask yourself that question tonight. What would it take for me to submit myself to the Lord? Because there will come a day, whether you like it or not, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is God. But wouldn't you want to do it in, a, in an act of worship because you love him? Wouldn't you want to do that then find out at the end of time that you had it wrong? So anyway, let's continue on and then we will close out. So I'm going to finish reading verses 13 through 14 and then we'll skip down and we'll see the end. 13 says, I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Of course, this talking about Jesus. Verse 23 it says, thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different than all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given his hand for a time and times and half a time. Three and a half years, second half of the tri uh, tribulation. But... The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the story, the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Okay, that, my friends, is chapter 7. Good job. Wow, you did it. I'm really proud of all of you. Um, I want you to think about that thing um, closely. In conclusion, last thought that's almost completely unrelated, but this is something that kind of like spoke to me, so this might be out of context. So anyone listening to this podcast, you're free to write me an email and judge me. I love what Daniel says at the very end. He says, I kept the matter in my heart. There are some things that God speaks to you that you don't have to tell everybody. In fact, there are some things that God speaks to you, visions and dreams, that you don't need to tell anyone. You can keep it between you and God. Oftentimes, we want to just share everything, share our lives, our emotions, who we like, whatever. But some things that God shows you, it's okay to just keep it in your heart and wait till the appointed time. I'll just leave it at that. Let's pray.